Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Ash Milton, Managing Editor at Palladium Magazine. Today, I'm talking to Jesse Vallee-Vital. You may know Jesse from his recent article at Palladium called Climate Change is Inevitable. Uh, we're going to discuss that a bit and some related topics that we had in mind uh, from when that article was being written. So Jesse is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto Department of Physics. Uh, he researches paleoclimate and ice-ocean interactions. Jesse, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what you're doing there? Yeah, sure. So uh, first off, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to talk about these ideas. In my PhD work, mostly I focus on exploring how the ocean tides interact the edges of ice sheets, which is something that's both meaningful in the past because there have been many instances where um, the climate has changed quite rapidly and this may be a, a causal factor. And it's also interesting because um, it informs us moving forward what types of situations we're likely to see coming out of the uh, West Antarctic ice sheet or areas where the tides and the ocean, uh, the rather the tides of the ocean and ice sheets are still interacting today. I, I remember one of the first conversations we had ages ago was about geoengineering. Palladium had at the time published a piece about that by Patrick Malore looking at the ice age or rather several ice ages and what we can learn from them about the cycles that Earth's climate goes through. We we had kind of talked about the fact that actually our our, our climate equilibrium right now is 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 fairly unstable historically. And we're looking at the future and uh, you know when when we had thought about okay you know the the idea of climate um people have fairly staked out positions on this topic pretty politically a partisan you know you can usually hear a couple sentences and pretty much predict what anyone's going to say and so maybe maybe let's just touch on the original piece so as, uh, we will we'll link it in the description so people can read it but our our basic thesis here is pretty simple right humans have an effect on climate this effect does not seem reversible we are going to have large changes in the global climate. We're going to have a lot of local fallout from this. From the perspective of governance, I would say even from the perspective of states, the main question at the moment is adaption to that reality. And so, you know, rather than kind of assuming that we're able to coordinate on a global level that we don't seem to be able to coordinate at, or just denying the whole thing, putting, you know, our heads in the sand uh, we decided to take a look at, okay, let's assume this is going to happen. Let's actually look at how this is going to affect us. But let's a account for the fact that humans adapt and and that we are in all likelihood going to come through this. We'll, we'll have changes, but society will change and, and we will have iterations. We'll have new political, new social orders maybe that have been marked by, by the process, by the population disruption by architectural adaption. We, we discussed the idea of sponge cities, right? You're already seeing some of this Shanghai, Jakarta, uh, other cities. They're, they're adapting their built environments uh, in order to basically maximize collection of rainwater because the monsoons are getting worse. You're seeing more hurricanes. Uh, and, and so, you know, on, on literally the physical level of life, you're already seeing adaption. And we will probably continue to see this over the next 100 years, 200 years, and and for I think for us that that was an important check, right? It's like okay, we're we're, we're gonna take this issue seriously, but we're also going to be hard-headedly realistic about where this is gonna go and what we're capable of doing about it. So maybe let's start there context-wise. This original discussion maybe give give us some insight about how you were thinking about that while while writing that piece. Yeah, sure. So I think that it's it, my inspiration for this piece kind of came from. Um, the fact that there's, uh, as you mentioned, the, the politicization of the climate issue puts you in a camp where you 
you can't simultaneously there's rather there's no home for people who believe that climate change is real dangerous and impactful but also that the types of solutions that have so far been proposed are the wrong ones it's kind of you're you're politically homeless if that's your your position um and so in writing this piece i, I wanted to kind of catalyze that a bit and and show that there's there's a there's a consistent way to think of this problem as not insoluble, but that it's not going to be solved. And that the answer is really, how do we adapt to those conditions? I think that this this gets a bit into an idea that we've been we've been playing with, which is that the, the arbitrary set point of choosing kind of 1850s pre-industrial climate as um, the gold standard for what we want to have and, and how this is really based on kind of a naturalistic fallacy that the way the, the the world should be is the way it would be if we try and abstract away human effect on it, which, uh, I mean, that's that's an old idea that goes back a long time. Right, right. So the, the idea is that in, you know, in the 19th century, we have the Industrial Revolution. And in this narrative, this is really the first time that humans actually start exercising this deeply impactful role on on ecosystems and on the climate and so on. And before that, you kind of have the stasis where, yeah, humans are kind of there and they're doing stuff, but everything is in this natural equilibrium. You know, humans are are kind of a neutral force. But but the thing the thing that's interesting, right, is that that's a pretty modern mythology, too. And, you know, I think there's something that that uh, on Palladium we've discussed on previous podcasts this this sort of mythos of human presence being something that that doesn't actually deeply impact the earth right like you know we we in in the 19th and 20th centuries uh america especially developed their public park systems and there were these kind of romantic ideas about you know primal nature primal wilderness and the way that you do that is is you set up environments where you don't have people living there and you you kind of minimize human presence um obviously you know you, you have tourism and so on but the idea is that uh you know leave no trace right we've all seen those signs humans are not supposed to impact the place but the thing is that that is a modern vision of the thing that they actually had to remove people from those areas, right? There were settlers living there, there were indigenous tribes living there. They artificially created those areas. Uh, and and so we actually created a myth. And and I think there's, there's really two ways, or at least two I can think of to kind of undermine this idea that before the 1850s, we hadn't had an effect. One is kind of on the philosophical level, which is that if you go back historically, uh, the belief among, among different cultures is that we have a profound role in like the cosmic order. Right. We are we're very it's it's not like the universe is happening to us. We play a constitutive role in the universe. So that's that's one way. But another way to look at it is to just point out that there's reams of evidence of how we've changed this, the face of the earth historically um, way before the 1850s. I think a, a common example um, that people might be a bit familiar with is, is the Terra Preta of the Amazon, which um, is this uh, Terra Preta is its dark earth. Um, and it was quite mystifying to uh, the first European people to see it. Um, I didn't really understand what was going on. And within, uh, with, with some further investigation, it kind of emerged that this is something that had been done intentionally by so the Amazonians. May, maybe, maybe just describe this stuff a bit more. So right, the, the, the settlers came, they, they find this rich soil. Uh, they can't figure out where it came from, but it seems like when, and so this is in the, the Amazon region, yeah, correct? The where, Amazon where the Terra Preta is. So they find the soil in the Amazon and they realize when they take it to their own lands, uh, they can even take it to quite unhealthy soil, infertile soil. And when they mix this terra preta into the earth, it suddenly restores its vitality. 
and and they had no idea where this came from. Was it just understood that this had existed in the Amazon? Well, it, Did we know? I mean, I mean, part of it is is that it, it it went along with the kind of the mysticism of like the Amazon is this kind of untamed wild area like it's it's interesting because it goes along with like these these mythologies of like lost cities in the amazon kind of amazonian high technology it all it all plays together in in what they were thinking um but one thing i want to stress is that the, it's not like a small patch of land right it's not like a few square meters the um they average 50 acres in size mm. and there um have been patches that are are found as large as 900 acres if mm-hmm. i'm correct so this is this is a huge a soil reworking project that's going on and it's done intentionally uh some estimates are that something like 10 percent of the entire amazon rainforest though that's a high estimate they they range uh between one to ten somewhere around there of the entire amazon rainforest was at one point um cultivated using this dark earth so i mean that's that's on the level of 19th century yeah so you're, you're saying there was was cultivated so yeah. so to be clear here what what has ended up happening is uh, as as they studied the soil, I don't know. Maybe you know more about the full story here, but it it became evident that actually this was a human made yeah. soil by the uh, indigenous groups that had lived there pre in the pre Columbian era. Correct? Yeah, yeah. And and so I mean, do we know how how this was made? Was this like sort of mass composting or something like that? Um. So there's there's been uh so I mean a few a few of the properties that are just. Um, why this works well is it's less prone to nutrient leaching. You get uh, a lot of uh, rain in the rainforest. Uh, and one effect of this is that it can leach nutrients out of the soil, leaving a pretty barren um, soil behind. It also has a high concentration of charcoal, which is what gave us the indication of what was going. It's, it's the use of fire mm-hmm. to produce parapreta. It's part of what gives it its dark color. Right. So clearly, is, so that's like the indication of human presence. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so kind of, you know, early... early um, Early theories about it is that maybe it's a volcano, something in the Andes. This was caused because there was some, like the, the terrapreters found more on kind of terraces up on these sides of mountains. So that would make sense if it was a volcano. But over time, the realization was that there's an anthropogenic cause, that it was it was um, affected by humans. Like, let, let's tie this together a little bit. So why are we talking about this terrapreta? How does this relate to our, our the other thread we opened here about climate change? Basically... What we're seeing here is in the Amazon, which is a kind of archetypal image of, you know, so-called primeval pre-human ecology, it turns out actually that humans are a major contributor to the ecosystem. And so the Amazon is, in part at least, a human creation. And the reason this is interesting is obviously that it completely violates, it disrupts the mythos that humans are this either neutral or negative force in the global ecosystem. Uh, it turns out that the history of, of human existence in the world is one where we're actively taking control and and exercising stewardship over the environments that we're living in. And so, okay, let's tie this back to our original discussion. Um, as you, you know, we had been having these discussions about the climate change stuff for the piece you were writing. We we kind of found this topic repeatedly coming up in discussion, which is, okay, how can we actually build a completely different understanding uh, about the human role in the world? Like if, if humans are humans are ecological actors, is there a way that actually we can conceive of that in a positive way? Are, are We're exercising power over nature in ways that we've never done before. 
But there, it is not at all clear why we should assume that this is a negative impact. And so, you know, on, on the one hand, we get this this kind of anti-human tendency where, you know, humans are the virus, we're the problem. On the other hand, we get this kind of, I, I think of it as the green manager thing, right, where we just have to sort of tweak um, our carbon output a bit, maybe do a little, you know, carbon markets or whatever, and and we can kind of use these these solutions that Wonks really like in order to stabilize things. But again, it's it's a neutral stabilization, right? The idea is we're going to become carbon neutral. I I would like to open with this discussion. Uh, I think on the podcast we have previously talked about this idea of terraforming Earth. The idea here is that humans are actually able to exercise a positive developmental impact over the world and one you know when we think about uh, a human world like a garden earth an earth where humans are are exercising deeper control and stewardship over what the earth looks like than we ever have before we should actually think of that as potentially positive we can create a vision where we have a world that is sort of formed as as a place where humans can thrive it is in balance there is a respect that we have for the ecosystems that we're finding ourselves in and the different parts of them but we we are kind of drawing on something that humans have always done which is that we are able to we're able to consciously shape the world in in a way that is in balance in a sense but is also a a an environment for human development yeah, well, what I'd say is that the, the biggest issue I have with the, the model of let's get back to the 1850s is that it just lacks imagination, right? It, it lacks conviction about the um, benefits that we can have on the earth. And I mean, um, l- like you mentioned, uh, the, the history of us terraforming the earth goes back really far. I mean, there's examples of diverting rivers and, um, you know, doing large scale drainage projects of, of marshes that go back to Mycenae in Greece. This is not a new thing for us to do. Perhaps this is the first time that we are having an effect on the uh, atmosphere, right? Um, and like the the average kind of the average temperature levels of the Earth, stuff like that, mm-hmm. on those large scale. This is the first time we're we're perhaps doing it, but it's not immediately clear that the temperature that it happened to be when we're coming out of the last ice age is the optimal temperature for the goals that we're trying to decide. As you as you mentioned before, the the history of how much carbon we've had in the Earth's atmosphere over the last five million years is quite variable. And we're we're by no means at one extreme or or the other. But the question we have to ask ourselves is is what are our what are our goals here? Right? How do we how do we take the production of carbon? How do we take the production of uh, other CFCs, uh, rather uh, greenhouse gases, including CFCs, and how do we make it work for us, mm-hmm. right? Because there's no going back. We don't we don't go back to 1850. Uh, that the kind of Malthusian worldview of the problem being human beings it doesn't it doesn't work unless you take a really hardline anti-humanist stance. Because you know when you're saying let's go back to the 1850s, because if we don't, a bunch of people will die. You're kind of saying that you just prefer a bunch of people to die in a different way. Right. And for human life to suck in a different way than yeah. being a little bit too warm. Ex- ex- or explain that a little bit more. Like, what what is the claim here? I mean, uh, the, the kind of anti-human decision you're kind of talking about, I assume, is something like we, you know, we, we don't want to face like climate fallout. So actually, we're going to artificially primitivize yeah yeah i mean that that's definitely you know the one the one model that we've kind of talked to is you know the people who are are saying we have to ban fossil fuels now and we'll figure out green energy or renewable energy whatever after that it's like 
that's not really the way that technological progress works. So let's think a little more about, is there a logic that we can pull out here about how humans are interacting with their environment? And it seems to be, presumably any of this starts with a problem. It turns out that the flooding is getting uncontrollable. These are problems negatively impacting the people living there. And so, okay, we have to try and solve that problem. Yeah. First, we we kind of try to solve that problem through lessening the damage. It's always a mitigation strategy first. Um, you know, for a, a good example of this is let's just look at the human um, utilization of fire, right? So a lightning strike hits a group of trees where you're near. What's the mitigation strategy? Just get out of there. Get, get away from it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and over time, as, as the mitigation strategy uh, is developed, then the question can be asked, okay, is there anything useful about this? Right. And when it comes to fire, yes, there's there's something very obviously useful about it. It provides heat uh, and warmth. It can cook foods, allowing us to access more of their nutritional capacity. It wards off predators. So there's a lot of good things about fire. Then so we bring the fire into the cave. Right. And we start getting sick because of carbon uh, dioxide. Right. And um, uh, low oxygen. So there's a new problem to solve, an, an attendant problem that's come along with an insufficient mastery of the solution to the original problem. And that's how I, I see climate change is that the original problem was we need to have energy. Right. We And so we use fossil fuels. Right. Um, and what problems that create that the industrial revolution created the problem of global climate change. So really where we stand right now is that we, we have insufficiently mastered the technologies of the industrial revolution because we still are dealing with the problems created by those solutions originally. So you can see the project of, of dealing with climate change as really gaining full mastery over the, solu- the solutions to the problems of the 19th century. That's one way I would I would conceptualize it. So the the model here is something like we we find a problem, then we try to mitigate that problem. We try to lessen the damage, but it, eventually it, it 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 sometimes maybe it often turns out that something beneficial is happening. So in the Terra Preta case, presumably they were taking charcoal or or food waste, organic food waste. They're dumping it somewhere. They're realizing that, huh, the more we leave the stuff there, uh, it turns out that a bunch of stuff starts growing there too. Maybe we should like take some of that and spread it in other sections. And then uh, at, at that point, when you, you kind of realize what works, you systematize it, right? There's a systematic logic that you start applying where, okay, we, we've kind of isolated the things that are working and we've managed to figure out the stuff that's harmful. And so we're going to start replicating this and yeah. we're going to start doing this more at scale. And and that's where the, the transformation kind of happens. And it's like, once you're doing that, the benefits are are going to start cascading kind of right it's like okay we're do, we're controlling fire now now we can you know keep it at the, the 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 cave or the tent you know between the tents to keep the animals away and we're cooking food and we're able to kind of do some cool stuff with like burning for agriculture uh and with the soil it's like okay now now we can grow a bunch of stuff maybe we can grow new stuff we couldn't grow before and so the 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 magic is kind of finding a solution that has these cascade effects and that starts scaling and and that's where you know when, when we get these like killer apps coming out of problem solving uh that seems to be where it and, happens and, and this is why i think that one of the ways to conceptualize the the climate problem has to be leaning on this process of adaptation that we've used for as long as we've been around um the the issue is not 
the, the, rather the solution is going to be of the form, how can we make carbon work for us? What does that look like? Mm. What does, what does harnessing the waste products of the industrial revolution look like made in its most beneficial format? This is, this is a hard problem. It's definitely a hard problem. Um, but it's not an insoluble problem. I, I think maybe let's 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 flip this. Let's apply this model to it a little more systematically. So, okay, we we we've we've taken the the idea of climate. The problem is we're not able to control our impact on on the climate. You know, I I almost don't want to focus on kind of just the climate thing because the the the, the causative thing here is the industrial system, basically, right? Like, th that's the common factor between carbon and destruction of ecosystems and overfishing. Like, we, we have developed this very powerful socio-technical logic, but we're not actually able to completely mitigate all the effects. A and we're not able to coordinate it at the top level. And so we have a bunch of this fallout happening. But that that also means, okay, the thing we notice here is actually when we're able to exercise that kind of large scale control, that has beneficial effects. And actually, we can kind of solve some of those problems with that same kind of control and with some of the same technologies. And so the question is like, okay, what does it look like then to take the, the kind of global ecosystem you know, we, we've done this before with fire, we've done it with terra preta, we've done it with water management. These are like very local examples. But now there are problems coming up that affect the entire globe. What are the killer apps that come out of applying, solving those problems at that scale? Yeah, and, and I think that the part of what makes this a complicated issue, which is what I touched on in the original piece, uh, is that not everyone's interests are aligned on on the climate. Mm -hmm. Right. So the, the reason why 1850 pre-industrial has been somewhat useful as a rallying point is, is because everyone can at least agree that that's before we started having a large scale effect on the climate. So it, it, it serves as that rallying point. But like I said, this, this lacks imagination. We can do better potentially than that specific point. Right. We, we know that there have been times where the planet has been much too cold for our liking. Right. Even mm -hmm. even to this day. Uh, a large chunk of the northern hemisphere is lar is largely unavailable for agricultural programs and we know this has not always been the case there have been times when green vegetation has stretched right to the border of the arctic ocean hmm. uh, in northern canada so we maybe we want things to be a bit warmer than they are but when we start having that conversation, it opens up the question that the the political desires of equatorial powers are not going to be aligned with the climatological desires of polar regions. And I mean, on our earth, that's just uh, Northern America because you don't really have anything going on in the South, but it, it complicates the problem immensely. But it, it's still the way forward, I would argue, is to to try and find what the actual beneficial outcome of climate change can be right. So to to express that in I, I guess more ideological terms, instead of just keeping the mindset of mitigating damage, you actually have to start developing this positive vision of what exercising industrial socio technical power at the level of the world looks like. What should the world look like? in which a kind of human-friendly, resilient ecology and human industrial power are not just mitigating each other, but they're kind of fully reconciled, right? They're self, they're reinforcing each other. 
Yeah. What What is the process of fully integrating the industrial evolution into our, you know, into kind of I would almost say like our telos as a species? What does that look like? Fully fully owning that adaptation, and what that looks like is dealing with all of its attendant consequences. Mm-hmm. Do you think that? there's an idea of industrial ecology that makes sense i i think we've we're already there in certain respects right we the one of the most successful animals on the planet uh is the cow and the reason that that's so successful is because we've industrialized the Hmm. production of it for the purposes of you know providing steak right Um, yeah like livestock uh are, are are kind of the first example of not quite industrial logic, I guess, but the 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 kind of logic we apply in in industrial logic, where it's like, okay, we're going to systematize and scale and and kind of apply, you know, trade and markets even to the thing. Livestock was one of the first examples of those, and it compl- yeah. far obviously predates um, any anything we're doing now. Yeah, and I think the the example you gave earlier about producing the parks is a kind of an example of an industrial ecology of, you know, drawing, interesting, drawing a line, a box around a certain area and saying this area is going to conform to our vision of what it would look like without us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, it, even the, the, the ecologies we're creating that are meant to be non-human or themselves planned in that way. Like we've created a vision of what it looks like and we've actually implemented it, which is an interesting situation to be in. But this is getting us more to the, the, focus that I I really wanted to hone in on. So what we have there is an example of humans intentionally constructing a particular ecology already, as as, as we pointed out. And in in the case of of the public parks, you know, you could argue that maybe the livestock example, that was sort of something that was bottom up, like we started doing stuff that worked. And, you know, over over hundreds of years, however long it took, um, we we got this large scale ecosystem that came out of it, but you know the, the the planning didn't really happen at the top level. What what I basically want to look at here is what what does it look like to start actually having this this like top level biome building mindset where okay we're gonna figure out entire ecologies and start constructing them and seeing what works. Yeah, well, so the example we can touch on for this is the Biosphere 2 project, which was uh, an American um, attempt to build a biome, very similar to like a vivarium, one of those closed environment things. And and part of what they realize is that it's really, really hard because uh, the population of various species within a closed system is a very complex dynamical system, very prone to runaways, right? So, um, you know, the predator prey, very simple dynamical system of yeah. if you have too many wolves, they eat all the elk, right? And if you have too many elk, they eat all the grass. And so yeah. everything dies and you get these the population booms and busts as the uh, the population scale. Well, that's that's two species trying to do it with like the full range of species in a given area. You're in a much more difficult system. So trying to engineer it is a much harder problem. I don't think it's an insoluble problem. It's not impossible to do. And I, I think that part of what the issue we've faced is that in, in realizing how complex nature is, there's a temptation to just say, well, Human minds can't do that. Like we can't figure mm. it out. There's, it's the existence too chaotic. But that's that's abandoning the mantle of responsibility of being the intentional world builders. Right as we're on the cusp of being able to actually build a world that's not just better for humans, but a a, a, a world that's better for species in general. 
right? We, you know, it's it's not going to be the rabbits that solve climate change. It's going to be us. Right. Yeah. So there's basically um, the thing we kind of have to do is convince ourselves that actually we're capable of of doing world building on that level of uh, building garden earth uh, in, in a sense. I mean, I don't maybe garden earth isn't even the right term to use here because I think we have a very artificial view of that. But, you know, it is easier to terraform earth than it would be to terraform any alien world. Uh, yes. And and so, you know, we kind of have already, uh, you know, a, a bunch of prerequisites supporting our form of life and our society. And we have a pretty complex living ecosystem on the earth that can kind of absorb damage, right? The The fact just is you, you can treat the earth pretty roughly. And even if you really screw up and suddenly get reduced to like a few million people or something, over over a uh, 100,000 years or so, you'll probably bounce back. Like Life is resilient. Yeah, life is pretty resilient. You know, even if you wipe your own species out, it's, it's pretty likely so- someone else will come along. Uh, over over the millions of years and, and kind of become the dominant species again. Um, not clear that anyone has quite matched us yet, but you know, the, it, it, the, there's a lot of cushion on, on Earth. And if we can't figure out how to do it here, it's pretty hard to imagine we can figure out how to do it anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the only only counterpoint I'd give for that is that if we're if we were to take Mars, for example, there's there's no hysteresis in the system, right? There's no, um, it's not past dependent. Right. We could we can go and start de novo on Mars mm-hmm. and basically institute exactly what we want. Like we could we could say, look, there's going to be eighty species. We we don't need fifty thousand types of spiders. I'm on board with that, <laughs> but. Um, yeah. So that that is one thing. The but, Australian wildlife can stay in Australia. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think that it's it's you're right in the fact that if if we're having trouble doing it here, it's not a very good indication that we'll be able to do it somewhere else. But this is, I would say, you know, really, um, this this gets into some kind of opinions on what the purpose of, of humanity is like what's our mm-hmm. what's our job here and i'd argue that our job is sounds something like making sure that the earth does not serve as both cradle and grave for the life that we're aware of right go go into that a bit well we're we're on this planet and if you only own one stock it just takes one bad day to wipe out all your savings right yeah. if you're only on one planet it takes one rogue gamma ray burst asteroid whatever to really screw things up we have a, you know i think it's the permian triassic uh, extinction event where something like 90 percent of species were mm. just gone that's that's pretty close to you know hitting the big reset button so I would say that you know our our goal our our job our telos as a species is to diversify life off of just one planet right and you know you can argue that as you go further further you know do we have to we should or we is our job to diversify out of the solar system maybe but i i would say you know right now the problem is get off this rock yeah yeah it's it's kind of um like if you want to look at it in terms of all biological life Maybe we we look at kind of biological life as like a higher level population. It has produced this kind of sub routine, almost subspecies, sub routine that is able to think in in terms of of the future, of the future, and of yeah, and of replicating itself onto uh, off this world, which which is an interesting development, right? It's this very intelligent development within the system of biological life. 
I, you know, I, I'm not sort of claiming like a, a kind of collective consciousness here or anything. But it does but get it us is... close to the Gaia hypothesis. Yeah. So, so I, yeah, I, I, I kind of want to figure out how how far we can take this logic of a human telos, and then looking at that in terms of of the development of life more generally, and yeah, of you know, you, you've mentioned the Gaia hypothesis here. Basically, like, how much meat is there on the bones of this, like, general vision of human telos? First, what does that vision really look like? And then how far can we go with it? Because I think this is an important building block of the vision of terraforming Earth and of what line of the human destiny is. There's a few ways that we can we can kind of grapple with this. Um, one is, like, the Kardashev scale of... Um, energy use uh which is um basically you know if you're if you're mobilizing all of the energy of a planet you're class one if you're mobilizing all of the energy of your solar system or your sun you're class two and by the time you get to the energy output of the galaxy you're class three right which, so it's, it's it's a very uh very exponential there's there's a lot of time between you know step one and step two right. step two and step three uh but i think that you can also conceive of it as kind of like a unity of purpose right to, to what extent are we as intelligent world builders on the same page about what our job is here? Mm -hmm. And clearly over time, you know, we've built up these, these concepts of nation states and, you know, we have supranational organizations that agree on more and more. So we're, you know, I, despite fears of globalization, we are moving more towards um, having a lot of what we believe agreed upon universally. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of those things it seems to be that maybe we should figure out this climate change thing before it or, or as it's harming us, right? And I think that the, the natural, the meat on the bone as we move forward is that we we say that, you know, we we invert the the idea that the best thing humans could do is not exist, right? And not be around and we're harming nature to be like, no, no, no. We are the stewards of nature. Hmm. We come out of nature and our job is to safeguard that, right? Uh, like I said, the dolphins are not building the rockets. That's us. That's our job. And if we get the dolphins to, you know, a sea world on Mars, we have done a great thing for dolphins. Mm -hmm. And that, that I would say, is is the the path that we have to we have to take, or that to, to accept that mantle of responsibility wholeheartedly is how we move forward. In addressing these problems right so it, it basically happens in the development of life that you get these important shifts which disrupt life as it existed but end up then driving the thing forward right so okay protein starts becoming important in in how cellular life develops sexual reproduction at some point becomes the this kind of killer app of genetic diversity with within uh certain forms of biological life and, and you know, on and on it goes. And what what seems to be happening with humans is that there is basically like a level of conscious, rational planning and thinking that humans are able to do that as far as we know, no other life is able to do. And what happens there is that the again, the the whole sort of system of biological life is massively disrupted. And, and so you have this major disruption happen. You know, and that maybe even results in kind of like localized destruction, right? Some life is outcompeting other life oh, uh, yeah, when that happens. Yeah. But the the overall life ends up becoming 
more resilient, more diverse, and more developed. Yeah, right? I, I think that part of the thing, part of the issue here is that it's it's tempting to fall into a kind of a notion of progress that puts human beings at the pinnacle, mm-hmm. right? In kind of a moral sense. And I, I think that you run into issues there because not everyone agrees about how um, the universe is structured morally. But I think what we can lean on is just you know, energy use and unity of purpose, right? In going from single cell to multicellular organisms, you get a, a increase in the unity of purpose, right? Now, one given cell can die for the whole to survive, right? And you can even see this on a deeper level with organelles inside cells, right? The, 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 the desire of each ribosome is suborned in a certain way to the desire of the cell as a whole. That cell itself is then part of an organ. That organ is part of a entire human being. That human being is part of a tribe or a society. And so as you, that, that's a very objective way, I think, to try and chart out the progress of life is that you have more and more biological matter directed in a single goal. And so I would say that that our kind of job as a species is to be like the mediator of groups of animals to a planet of animals that mm-hmm. like our, to, 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 to manage that transition to the point where we're now thinking of the earth as the object. It's, it's, it's kind of similar to like scientific, uh, you know, science fiction ideas right like you know you look at star trek and and star wars where you know the planets are kind of operating and once in a while you'll have a story where where there's some rebel element at home but that seemed to be very much the outlier very much the exception and so i think that that's the the fact that that's coming up in the collective unconscious right that that, that those are what our stories are about is showing that we're on the cusp of that type of of transition Right. Yeah. Or like it's at least we're we're able to conceive of of planetary forms of order. I mean, you know, global orders, world orders. That's not a new concept no. at all. There there are ways that like global political logics exist, and maybe it's more of the form of a bunch of sort of at least autonomous actors, states, and great powers uh, interacting with each other. But you you still there is a kind of in, intelligibility to the system right like it makes sense it's logical there's a difference between ordering the people who live on the earth and ordering the earth right and i think that that's that's the transition right is is that um you know uh, political orders don't often have conceptions of like what the you know what the what the role we play towards the you know the the fish population are right it's seen seen as a resource not as a responsibility well maybe that is uh then a political uh order as to you know maybe it's not consciously thought about but like i i do actually think that the 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 kind of uh, you know high degree apparently used to like the this idea of standing reserve um that, that we've reduced sort of non-human nature to standing reserves uh, to be used in production. And that seems to make sense. And that is a political, you know, maybe we can say that it's not well thought about, uh, although, I mean, there, uh, Heidegger thought about it, right? People have thought about it. But but regardless of why it's the dominant logic, it is the logic. And we act, actually, um, we make decisions, states make decisions, businesses make decisions, based on the logic that we have and and that we kind of reproduce in the institutions that we have mm-hmm. and and in the practices that we have about how we manage those elements 
of of the country. I, my, my instinct here again is to say those resources. Um, so like maybe that's a good example. I, but I think I think in a similar way that we've progressed from kind of viewing a bunch of serfs as a resource for fighting a war, we'll, we're also moving towards recontextualizing um, the 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 food stocks. And the um, the biological resources of the earth, and recontextualizing them as um, things which have their own needs, and which we might bear some responsibility to, sheerly by the fact that we have the ability to, you know, we can wipe out rabbits far more easily than rabbits can wipe out us. Right. And we could do this in a kind of, you know, apocalyptic suicidal move of detonating nukes. But it, it remains true that we alone have the power to end life on mm-hmm. Earth or to significantly affect it in a way that that no other species has. And with that power um, comes the fact that we can use it for beneficial purposes. And I would argue that it's our job to do it it's our telos to use that for beneficial purposes yeah so so there, there there there's an interesting concept there in what does it mean for humans to have a telos and and we've hearkened a couple times in this discussion to the idea that when you look at these systems that we're in there's kind of a, a subsuming logic in those systems where you know an an individual component or an individual actor might potentially have a a very wide range of actions they could take but then in the context of the system that they're a part of that they're formed in that they originated in that those kind of inherent powers of the agent are directed in a certain way so you know that that's kind of abstract so um you know you mentioned organelles as an example of this and it seems like that's an interesting example, I think, because uh, my understanding is that when we look at these these components of cells, they either developed or at least were heavily conditioned by being absorbed into the cellular structure. So basically, it's not the case that that organelles, at least as we know them, right, or uh, you know, the mitochondria structure as we know it today, just kind of existed. And then, then kind of a bunch of things combined together. But actually, there was this kind of biological logic playing out where the different parts were conditioned, and now we couldn't even really conceive of them now as separate it's, it's from the cellular structure. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the mitochondria because you know that we have mitochondrial DNA, that's, right? That's yeah. different. So there is one hypothesis that mitochondria were just at some point absorbed fully into the cell, and it's just well, the waste products they produce are what we use for energy. So we just. Right. Them. So that's one thing. But yeah, I think I think you're right on the point that um, it's once it's been put together and functions, it's now inseparable. You can't take my spleen out of me and have a functional spleen. You right. just have a Jesse without a spleen and a piece of meat. Yeah. And I think that that similarly, we can view human beings, the animals, uh, the plants that we have, the bacteria in the, you know the flora and fauna as organs of a unit of life, like a biota. Because if we're going to terraform any other planet, it's not just human beings going over there. We're going to bring food. We're going to bring animals. Yeah. We're going to, whether we like it or not, bacterial, we're bringing bacteria. Uh, that, yeah, bacterial elements that live on us so, and so on. So I think that we get to the point where it's it, like trying to analyze a ribosome without the context of the cell it exists within is a fool's errand, right? Mm-hmm. To a certain extent, you can zoom in on it, but you have to understand its inputs and outputs. And I think that trying to understand, you know, human beings as we are now without the inputs and outputs of the other parts of life that we are um, affecting and I would argue responsible for, we miss 
the force for the trees. Right. Yeah. And and I think that that's sort of a challenge to um you know when when people when we make strong statements like it's like humans are responsible for life there's this instinct a lot of people have where oh well this is a sort of arrogant human centrism or something and and you know you can kind of just do whatever you want but that's actually the error of thinking that we're entirely free agents instead of actually this critical component of a larger system yeah i think you you can almost I would say you could you could um, analogize it to the immune system. You could be like, man, that killer white T cell, it can just kill any cell it wants. It's, right. But it's like that's not what it's doing, right? Yeah, it's, it's killing the it's killing the cells bacteria. that are going to harm yeah. you. So you could you could view that as like with humans. Yes, of course, the fact that we have the power to do whatever we want uh, means that we could use it for negative outcomes. Mm-hmm. But what's attendant with power is responsibility. Mm-hmm. And that mantle of responsibility that we we hold uh, is, I believe, dependent on the fact that we do have the power and we have to exercise it judiciously. And I'd argue that there is a correct answer to how we do that. I find this idea interesting that the mitochondria, the 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 the, it, the things it produces that are useful for us were actually waste originally, and then they became beneficial in the cell. And this reminds me of our earlier discussion on on the Terra Preta as well, right? Where what started presumably in part as human waste ended up becoming extremely useful and beneficial. And so we're we're in this mindset now where where we see things like we see important components of the industrial ecosystem. Like take an oil company, right? Like this, this very large, complex resource extraction structure um, that we we take advantage of but in in our eyes it's this fundamentally harmful wasteful thing um but if if we were going to be able to do decarbonization in a very intentional way we would presumably need similar scales of industrial structures i remember when we talked to benjamin bratton um the philosopher and writer some time ago he kind of presented this notion of an oil company in reverse and and the idea here is that we would actually kind of want to embrace the the scale and the aesthetics and the mechanics and the power of the industrial system uh, and see it as this positive ecological force. I, I basically would like to figure out what right now, what what technologies, what practices, like let's let's scope out the parts of the socio-technical structure that we're in that seem to actually have powerful beneficial components that might be disordered now but are could potentially be the most important the most important components if we're actually able to achieve something like the terraforming earth vision yeah and i I think i think bratton's idea of the oil company in reverse is is a really good one because like our waste product is carbon dioxide it's not toxic waste right Mm. it's something that's integral to life completely and so the fact that we haven't found a way to make that work for us is uh kind of ridiculous almost right. um so I, I think the one thing though i think is that uh we, we can't have a chain of putting oil back in the ground and then taking it out and burning it because of mm. thermodynamics we have to be getting the uh, energy from somewhere but what that might allow us to do is it might allow us to kind of shift into a slower level of decline Right, where we're able to to you know use solar panels for, or something to put the the carbon back in the ground, um, potentially 
turning it back into the um, the long chain uh, molecules that we then burn. Though um, my my guess would be that it, that would be very difficult to do just right. from an energy perspective. Um, but in terms of like other other kind of areas where there's there's something being left on the table, it's it's hard to it's hard to kind of see them because the minute you see the minute you you would notice them they then get employed. So it's, right. it's yeah. you know, there, there's no $20 bill sitting on the ground. Yeah, yeah. That, and, and that's the thing. It, it, it's, 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 it is difficult, but l- let's look at uh, nuclear power, for example. Okay. So in its mid-century form, what we were looking at here was fairly large, complicated centers of energy production that produced, uh, you know, some of the worst forms of waste that we could sort of socially could conceive of. We've, we've continued iterating that. It looks like there's some industrial uses for the waste produced by nuclear facilities. We're able to make them smaller now. We're able to make them less uh, intensive to set up and maintain. And safer. Um, right. And so it seems like with nuclear power, we have something like the problem mitigation stage now of that form of energy. And so, and, and you know, d- depending on how much you can scale up the industrial uses of the waste produced by nuclear facilities. Maybe we even start to get some negative output from that. But we we haven't quite figured out yet how to make this kind of wholesale productive force. I mean, maybe it already is in that the energy we produce from it is 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 some of the, you, you know, in terms of climate, it's some of the cleanest energy. And in terms of output, it's some of the most efficient energy. So maybe we can argue that actually that that output is all we need for it to be like the the killer app version of this. Yeah, because in in contrast, right, it's like, does does nuclear reactors produce something we don't like? Yeah, it produces uh, nuclear byproducts, but it's doing it's it's doing a lot better than the current um, fossil fuel way of Mm -hmm. producing things. So it has a comparative advantage, right? And the other thing is that if you can if you can mitigate the negative outcome so so much that it's basically easy to deal with by dropping it in a deep hole in the ground, mm. um, then you've pretty much won, right? It's it's you you it's, it's like um you're you're approaching zero, you're limiting to zero, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, I mean the the this I think the safety is the largest um that was the largest roadblock to it. Um and now what we're dealing with in terms of nuclear power is just a generational issue where the generations who like the boomer generation kind of remembers Chernobyl being a thing. Fukushima uh is another issue. I don't I mean in general don't build nuclear reactors yeah, on the near, coast. Yeah, coast and near where you have hurricanes or earthquakes. I mean, we have we have like all of Manitoba and Saskatchewan here that we could just dot with the right, hand. right, yeah. I mean that that starts looking like France essentially, yeah, then, which, yeah. where they also have that ability. Germany as well, although they've they reversed course uh, on that and gone to coal, which makes <laughs> which I... makes no sense. Um, but but th- that's an important thing, right? B- because what ends up happening, like the there's a failure mode here where um, when we have a new development, something beneficial. Um, we are also going to start having problems with it. And, and maybe one of the dangers, um, you know, when you reach this global scale of of action where, where you're actually having global impact, the problems you're going to get from them are going to be necessarily global as well. And so it's pretty easy to get spooked early on before you actually get to the stage where you start integrating the waste, basically, and and actually figuring out the the positive feedback loops. And, you know, if we're going to translate this into political terms, then maybe the question is just how do you create a 
kind of elite culture, a political culture that is comfortable taking some knocks, but has the confidence that it can figure out how to integrate those things. Because I, this is the thing I think no one really wants to say, right? I, I, I remember Elon Musk at some point said that, yeah, people are probably going to die when we go to Mars. And it kind of causes negative feedback. But it's like, how many people died in the Atlantic Ocean? We're like, going to a new planet. Of course, yeah, people, there's going to be disasters. There, there are going to be failures. There are going to be like mission failures. There's going to be structural breakdowns. There are probably going to be conflicts. Like in, I mean, yeah, look, obviously in any particular case, like you don't want anyone to die, but it's a pretty confident prediction that there is going to be human sacrifice in getting to Mars. And I mean, <laughs> hopefully the people doing that are basically like, yeah, we're ready to, you know, put our lives on the line for this glorious mission. But, but like you, you to do that, you need to have a, an first an elite culture, but also a society that is basically comfortable shouldering well, large I, risks. I mean, I mean, that's part of it, right? Not everything can be Apollo 11. You're going to have a few challengers. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that you're, you're right in saying that, that there's a, there's a risk aversion, um, because we're, we're fairly comfortable now. Right. And, yeah. th and the, the step away from that comfort, the step into like the next horizon, which is literally hurtling yourself in a tin can across the vast expanse of space to a dead planet. Mm takes a lot of vision yeah it, and it takes a it, it, it takes a you know it's you're really getting you're getting out of the warm bed and going into the cold in a, yeah. in a real way for a, a reward that that is mostly philosophical it's it's mostly teleological yeah right in your lifetime at least you're yeah. probably not going to see you know green mars no maybe musk's name gets put on a on a plaque yeah, or, or yeah. you know we there's there's a or new... nuked into the ice caps or something. yeah yeah or something like that so it's great for him but for you know all the people who are who are flying across and um setting this up uh it's it's less of a practical decision i think it has to be motivated um by the same type of motivation that leads one to pursue a religious life it, mm, it's it's, yeah. it's a real agree like pointing yourself at a higher calling and knowing that it's going to cost you um materially emotionally and potentially your life right but, but because you have a conception of a higher order goal to shoot for mm -hmm. which I, and i think that, that one of the ways to motivate people at least um on the different political sides of this is the kind of unity of purpose mankind having a responsibility and a mantle of a mental responsibility rather for the life of the planet we we do this not for ourselves but for our children we do this not for ourselves but for life as such thanks for listening we've now reached the end of the first half of the podcast the second half is available on our patreon you can sign up at palladiummag.com subscribe it usually gets better in the second half so you don't want to miss it this project wouldn't be viable without your support so we hope to see you soon